Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to the first episode of 2023. And I am starting in style. I hope one of your resolutions is to learn more about wine as I am taking you to a wine region that for many, including myself, are not so familiar with. And that is the Jura region in France. I have wine expert, geography expert, even history expert. It it really seems like there is nothing this guy doesn't know. Jimmy Smith talking to us today. Now, Jimmy is literally one of the best wine educators out there. You'll hear through this podcast all about Jimmy's wine schools, his YouTube channel, Wine with Jimmy, and his other wine businesses. He's even making wine now in England. So anybody wanting motivation for setting up their own business, you'll enjoy the first part where I work out how Jimmy has got himself into the world of wine. Then a few fun wine disaster stories. And we will then get into the nitty gritty of Jura about 16 minutes or so into this episode. It is jam packed. It's a little over an hour. Oops. (laughs) But I promise you, Jimmy is just full of wine gems. I could not cut them out. So pour yourself a glass of wine and let's go. Jimmy, are you ready to bring your superpower, which is educating us all on wine? (laughs) I could just about manage. Yeah, no, I can do it. I'm I'm in my zone. I'm in the zone. Yes. Okay. And as we already discussed, we haven't drunk any wine yet. So, you know, your brain's completely there. (laughs) I'm definitely better when I've had a few, so. uh... Ah, oh God. So we're not getting you in your best, (laughs) in your best moment. It depends who you talk to, I suppose. Uh, Well, let's see how this goes. Now, I want to know, how did you get the wine bug? Well, you have to cast your mind back a long time to... I'm ready. Some people some people call it the Dark Ages. And... The Dark Ages? How old are you again? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me finish the sentence. The Dark Ages of wine retailing. I actually come ah. from not a wine background, so my parents were teetotal. Mm. So I grew up in that kind of environment, and three older brothers start working in catering. Uh, they're all between four and ten years older than me. And I was the last to join that kind of process. At the age of 16, I started working. I'm from Lincolnshire in a a nice sort of uh, sleepy town. I started working in restaurants and was poached by the local wine shop, a wine rack. Oh, okay. It was Christmas time. And I was doing my thing, talking about some of the wines on the list. And the, the manager of the wine shop was very excited because he had lost one of his members of staff. And then suddenly there's a vacancy and he was hearing me talk about it. It was like, oh, how, how would you like to work in, uh, in the wine shop? And I was like, well, actually, um, yeah, I would. I was kind of quite annoyed. Um, can I use can I use foul language? Am I allowed yes, to? Yes, you can. Okay, good. I have the explicit yeah. label, just in case. <laughs> I was quite pissed off, of course, as you would be at Christmas time working in a, in a restaurant. So if anybody had offered me anything, to be honest, at that time, I would have took it. And uh, I did my WSET level two, level three. I passed at the age of eighteen. Oh my god! Now that is impressive. Yeah, I think I was right the youngest. The at, youngest yeah. at the the time, but it probably 
much younger than me now. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then I became the assistant manager and then manager of that place in the year that I had off before university. I went to university at the age of like 19, 20, and I'd done all my wine qualifications. So basically that sort of time in my life where mm. most kids have absolutely no idea what they want to do and no direction, they're just kind of... Uh, uh, swimming in in multiple directions. Then for me, it's kind of that was it. I was like, well, I want to do this, and I went to university. Uh, it's a long story, but I ended up doing geography. And <laughs> oh, that's okay, of course. Yeah, but I, I didn't start off doing it. I started off doing mechanical engineering at Newcastle, oh, and okay. um, which I was terrible at. And I actually switched on the second day. I went to the geography department of the social sciences, and uh, I said, "Have you got any?" space on the geography course and they went um actually we have come in for an interview and uh, i talked to my then with my, my tutor he became my tutor for 30 minutes about wine and that was it and he was like you should do a dissertation on wine you know the human geography of wine and i was like done ah. and, and he was like uh, he was like you're on board and it was amazing because it basically i managed to cheat the ucas system here in the uk oh i love <laughs> it when you can do that right oh, yeah, tell us all, I, need, tell I, us all. I think i needed like an abb to get geography at newcastle university and i didn't have anywhere near that needless to say <laughs> Uh, but I did this backdoor approach and I got in and I, you know, um, succeeded, got a 2-1 and I knew before I started that course what I wanted to do and I came down to London mm. and started working within Wine Rack again. So I, I started opening up some of their new brand Wine Racks, working with Oz Clark at the time. Ah, um, uh, that's cool. Yeah, and, and that's where it all started, yeah. So the real sort of seminal moment for me was just a bit before that, how I got the wine bug uh, in that restaurant was... Um, the restaurant that I ended up leaving, you know, I was poached from, mm-hmm. they they brought in a supplier. It was an Italian restaurant, so they brought in a supplier. They did a tasting of Brunero do Montalcino, Chianti Classico, Barolo, you know, mm-hmm. some lovely wines. Yep. Bearing in mind, I was like 17. The guy who led the tasting was like, actually, you've got a really good palate for a 17-year-old. And I went, oh, I don't even know what that means, but thanks. <laughs> and that's, that's what kind of, you know, the butterfly effect from that moment, I think. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's not bad to start with a little bit of Barolo, is it? <laughs> It's one of your first wines. No, no. Now tell me, where is the wine, the one wine memory that you have that just sticks and says, yes, this is it. I'm never leaving this industry. um, Is that tough? It is tough. Basically, they all stem around, I think, my camper van. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, I have a 1971 Volkswagen camper van called Jeff. Oh, Uh, Jeff, okay. And uh, after Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, of course. Um, that's a story for another day. Another one. I bought him 12 years ago, so in 2010. We have a number of, um, I, when I say we, me and my chief wine buyer, one of my best friends was my best man at my wedding. We did these trips together in the years before my, my kids came along. <laughs> and we did so many wonderful visits. But I think one that really sticks in my mind is not necessarily a visit or the wine that really kind of floated my boat or anything like that, but it was just a moment in time which I absolutely love. We were driving, and this is when we had a Tom Toms. This is like 10 years ago. Oh you my know, God, does I anyone know. actually have Tom Toms? I know, I know. They it's were like... so on trend, weren't they? <laughs> I know, and, it's just, <laughs> and they were so sort of archaic, and we had this um, Irish lady dictating to us, you know, <laughs> through the Tom Tom, but she, she took us through 
the wrong part of the coat door. So we should have gone around the coat door, around the hills, but it took us right through the middle of it. Oh, well, I bet that ended up being quite amusing. It was because it it was hammering it down. It was kind of monsoon-like rainfall at that time. So we're in a a leaky 1971 Volkswagen bus, um, (laughs) and it's taking us down this backwater road, which ends up being in the middle of a vineyard. So to above us, you can see vines coming down a gentle slope and then below uh-huh. us, a quite steep slope. Quite close. This is around the area like saint Aban, Saint-Romain, you know, just uh, in yeah. the hills from Chassin-Montrachet. I turn around to Matt sitting next to me. I said, we, we're not going to get through this. We're going to have to turn back. So I started doing a three-point turn, which ended up being a 60-point turn to try and <laughs> get back. In between the vines? In between the vines, and then there's almost like uh, so much soil erosion going on here that because it was so heavy that we were then perched over this precipice, over this slope, and we were slowly inching down it, very slowly, and and oh the God. the reverse was not working. And then I said, Matt, you're going to have to get out and hold the van in place. So Matt gets out in the absolute monsoon rain. So I, I don't know if you know a Volkswagen camper van, but it has a flat front, right, with a nice little nose on the yeah, front yeah, of it where yeah, the tyre yeah. goes. Yeah, yeah. So he's pushing right there. He's right close to me because I'm at the steering wheel. So we're uh-huh. kind of about three feet away from each other. He's drenched, you know, he's he just he's like a drowned rat. And I'm sitting <laughs> in the car looking very worried because we're still not really getting anywhere. And this pursues for about five minutes. And then I'm like, you know, I'm starting to think of my MacGyver moment. I'm like, shit, I've got to think of something here. And um, we had just been to Champagne previously because this is Burgundy. We've just been to Champagne. And I was like, Matt, 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 I'm going to put a case of wine on the reverse so it keeps it in place. I'm going to empty the champagnes and I'm going to use the cardboard as tracks. You're going to empty the champagne? Not, 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 no, empty the boxes of champagne. Oh, thank God. I mean, <coughs> but just, just I'll get to that, that, that phrase will actually come true in a second, though, the one you just oh, no. picked up. No. no, positively. Okay, okay. So then right. uh, <clears throat> I used the cardboard under each tyre, hoping it would work, but not really having much faith. And lo and behold, it did. Uh, and, oh, and we managed okay. to get up the slope reversing. I mean, the van went into a bunch of vines. I think we caused a bit of damage, oh, um, no. you know, but there was no one to tell. And, uh, <laughs> you know, moving on, I don't, do, think, do, it, do, I don't do. think it was too bad. But then we stopped the van and we, you know, picked up all the cardboard, which just caked in mud. We were both soaked at that point. I mean, Matt probably more so than me. But then I just said champagne and we emptied a couple of bottles uh, of champagne uh, into your mouths though yeah, yeah into this our time. mouths uh, <laughs> I think one was a Pierre Payard Bouzy Grand Cru and uh, I cannot remember the other one but uh, we sat there in the middle of the Bourgogne Côte de Bone basically to escaping a scenario which could have been a disaster drinking champagne wow. in, in the rain and we sat out in the that rain for about 10 minutes you know it's not necessarily one that goes yeah that's the best champagne ever or the best best you know <laughs> it was just a wonderful moment in time where we're drinking champagne in burgundy because we saved the van's life you know Hurrah! Uh, so Hurrah! <laughs> do you know what i have a not so dramatic story that's similar to yours which is driving through Val de Biardene obviously those lovely steep hills in Prosecco land yep. and our sat nav at the time and I'm thinking back this probably was potentially 10 years ago and basically middle of the night driving back from a restaurant and it decides to take us completely smack bang through the middle of a vineyard vines on both sides we're in a, I think probably a cinquecenta so it's really low, really small. Mm-hmm. All the stones are just banging underneath the car. Do, 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 do. And we're like, oh my God. And we'd committed 
too much. It was so steep where we were. We were like, we're in this tiny little car. It's not going to have the strength to take the two of us probably back up. So we just committed to it. And I mean, long story short, we're fine. It was fine. <laughs> but for like two or three minutes, we're like, oh my God, this car is going to fall apart. And we're going to literally damage somebody's vineyard. (laughs) Yeah, your story is better. I've got a whole (laughs) host of those. I'll give you a very short one as well. This is in Alsace. My my van has come to our rescue. We've just been to Domain Vineback with Uh Catherine Fowler, now the late Catherine Fowler. And we tasted through, you know, Alsace. They probably have 10 varieties making 30, 40 different wines. We tasted all those wines. Then we'd had a bit of lunch where I'd had a couple of beers. And then we were driving. And I was absolutely fine, but with the gendarmes in France, you never really know. And we were driving on the wine route, and then we were asked to pull over by a collection of gendarmes that were were standing there, the police. And they were just pulling over random vehicles. So they pull us over, I look at Matt, and I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. And then he kind of symbols to me uh, to wind down my window, and it takes about a good minute to wind down the window. So he got quite frustrated with that. And then he said, please... uh, (laughs) Yeah, the motor, and I was like, uh, "Well, if I stop the motor, if I stop the engine, he, he won't start again for about thirty minutes." And there's like a whole line of cars behind me, and then he goes off and confers with his other policeman, comes back and says, "I'll just go on." And and we drove oh, off, and I was god. like, "Yes, yes!" Oh my god! And my my, my oh, camper van, yeah, oh my, my camper van coming to my rescue. Actually saved you. My knight <laughs> in shining orange armor. <laughs> Good old Jeff. Now tell me. At what point did you decide you wanted to be in wine education? I started working for the retail group, Thresher Group, uh, opening their wine rack stores. Mm -hmm. I'd already had my level three, and then they were putting me through my diploma, so they were paying for my diploma. And I found out the structure of how that retail chain was delivering WSE's courses, which was absolutely archaic. Archaic, oh, archaic, archaic, okay. haphazard. It was horrendous. And <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And I started teaching as a part of this. That's how I, I kind of got to know it. Mm-hmm. It was just an absolute mess. So then I had the kahunas really to come up with a business plan. I went to see the CEO at the time of Thresher mm-hmm. Group, uh, had a meeting with him and said, look, we currently have about 20 tutors. There's absolutely no direction to the teaching. In, and a lot of it is exceptionally, let's say, challenging. I, I was being quite diplomatic with my wording (laughs) and I said this is what you should do you should have a smaller amount uh, maybe five or six it should be centralized there should be one person leading it me and um, please uh, (laughs) please um, look into it you'd save this amount of money you'll get better results and and all this kind of stuff amazing and they accepted it and then I became their head of education at the age of uh, 24 25 years old and then I held that post for a couple of years but it was really getting to the tail end of that company They'll be run into the ground by a succession of different owners, and that all fell apart. So I also launched the Wine Rack Wine School. Did you? With a guy called Quentin Sadler, who is oh, yeah. fairly yeah. Mm-hmm. fairly well known in the in the trade. Also teaches for me still to this day. So we we launched has that. A good, has a good business card. <laughs> he does, yeah. With the <laughs> cartoon the, drawing, yeah, of him. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he quite likes that. And um, that's how it all started. But they went into administration in two thousand and seven. I found myself at a bit of a loose end and I decided to do a bit of research. Um, I had no financing, so I had no money behind me. So I couldn't go off and do my own thing. So I joined a new franchising network called the Local Wine School Network, which was set up by a gentleman up in Newcastle. He was looking for the first people to join it. uh, Mm -hmm. And I inquired and I said, look, I currently live in West London and I'd love to set up um, the franchise of West London Wine School for Ah. your franchise network. Being a franchise network, you only needed 
a certain amount of money, a much smaller amount of money to join it. And bear in mind, I was only probably at this age, about 26, 27, no money behind me and little business acumen. I needed a lot of help in terms of, you know, search engine optimization, website design and all that kind of stuff. And it seemed like it was the right fit at the time. And it certainly was. And yeah, I, I launched Western Wine School in Fulham. And now it's, as you know, it's the rest is history. It's one of the largest wine schools in the UK. And yeah. And here we are. We're missing out quite a little bit. But now I said to you, because you are fantastic at calmly and clearly educating people on wine regions i asked you to give me a selection of old world wine regions that you might want to talk about and one of them was jura Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i am so not good with jura because i don't drink i don't drink enough of it in fact i don't remember the last time i had a jura maybe about five years ago is that terrible no it's not it's not at all i mean it's a very small wine region it's only about 2,000 hectares, and then most of the time it's decimated by frost. So it's really, there's not much of it available. <laughs> uh, it's very much um, desired by East London, Shoreditch types, and New Yorkers. It's kind of a bit of a stereotypical um, hipster sort of wine style these days, or can be anyway. But there are, ugh, there's so much wonderful stuff to be found from Jura. It's an amazing area. I think it was Andrew Jefford who said, if you want to get a glimpse of what good wine might have tasted like in the time of Shakespeare, then you look here. Oh, that's interesting. And actually, back in the past as well, you say that there's like 2,000 hectares. It was like 10 times as much. This region used to be a hell of a lot bigger, right? Yeah, Jura is a wonderful little area. It's 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 within the French Comté, which of course is known for cheese. Comté and, cheese! And, yeah, which is the most exported cheese out of France and... Uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful in all of its guises. And yeah, you're right. Before the advent of railway, before the onslaught of phylloxera, and also before the increase of beer production, Jura was huge. It was producing, yeah, 20,000 hectares, very much sort of filtering that into places like Switzerland, Austria, northern Italy, and of course, a lot of sort of eastern France. And they were doing very well, but then comes along the likes of beer production and the French start to drink more beer and people drink less of these regional wines. Then the railway connects places like Marseille up to Avignon, to Lyon, to Dijon, to Beaune, and suddenly all these cheap southern wines start to flood into all the markets. And then Phylloxera comes along and really puts the nail in the coffin. And, you know, after all of these succession of setbacks, and there's also a lot of social economical issues going on at the time, Basically, the growers went, ah, oh, fuck it, we can't be bothered. <laughs> they just went, there's too much competition, there's just too many problems, it's too wet, there's too many, you know, vineyard issues. And it really, really sort of um, diminished to a, a tenth of its size uh, with a few stout heart individuals carrying on the baton. But yeah, it's a very small today, but was once quite large, yeah, for sure. But like you said, that, you know, it's really wet and it's rainy. There is so much more rainfall there than if you compare it to where we are in London, right? Loads more rainfall. Yeah, so it's it's eastern France. It sits in the foothills of the Alps, and the Alps therefore sits to the eastern side of it. And if you know a little bit about geography of uh, France, the major, and it's the same with England as well, the major air mass is the westerly wind that comes from the Gulf Stream. And this what batters, you know, most of the uh, the west of France. That's what batters Ireland and Cornwall and uh, in, in the UK, Wales, for example. So this is quite far away. So logically thinking, you're like, well, it's not right on the west, but 
The issue is that there's not really much on the eastern side to protect it against the prevailing westerly winds. So places like in the Rhone Valley to the south uh, has the huge central uplift of the Massive Central, mm-hmm. and that has a lot of protection. The wind that comes from the west is channeled into Bordeaux, or it goes north of that, so the Loire, and then heads towards the Paris Basin, where it's then pulled a little bit down towards places like Burgundy, and then hits the Alps. And it hits the Alps at south of Alsace. So it hits either the Vosges Alsace, and it doesn't get Alsace. Alsace is only about uh, 400, 500 millimetres of rain a year because it sits on the, the right side, literally the right side of the Vosges. In both, in in both. both senses. <laughs> Whereas what's to the direct west of Jura? Uh, the direct west of it is a big plain called the Bresse Plain, very famous for chicken, Poulet de Bresse. And that's where the Saône River runs through, the, the beautiful Saône River, which runs down to the Rhône, meets the Rhône, and it, it's flat. And then there's some hills, some gentle hills near Burgundy, but really it just gets this momentum, and then it hits a big brick wall, which is the huge Alps, and it rains. And that's what rainfall generally does. It hits a big geographical feature, rains there, and what's below that is Jura. So uh, it gets very wet, yeah. Poor I mean, Jura. typically sort of 1,200, 1,100 millimetres of rain, which... Puts it on par with like Devon, Dorset, Cornwall, but as you rightly said, twice as rainy really as as kind of southeast of England. To most people's surprise, it's, we're quite dry here. I know, I know, it's, and that's all we do. We moan about the rain. So, yeah. So okay, we've talked about the fact that you know it rains a lot, but this is a you know moderate continental climate, very close to Burgundy, right? In terms of where where does it sit in France? Yeah, it's eastern France, uh, as I mentioned. So if you If you go to the east, it's the mountains, the foothills. Uh, Got lots of lovely, pristine lakes up there. Great skiing, of course, when you get to the Swiss border. But as you head to the west, you come down to the plains, the Bresse Plains. You come down to the Saône River. You cross Mm -hmm. the Saône River, and then you're in Burgundy. And uh, if you were to drive from Dijon or Beaune in the Côte d'Or, so north of the Côte d'Or and in the Côte d'Or, to the major populace of the wine area of Jura, which is Arbois, it's about 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Yeah, it's not far, it's is it? It's very close. And it's brilliant because if you do go to Burgundy and visit, of course, you do very classic. You know, you go through the Cote d'Or and you visit all those beautiful villages, some great producers. You go to Bone, you know, you have some good gastronomy. But honestly, just to get away from that very expensive <laughs> part of the trip, <laughs> just a quick hop over for a couple of days to Jura is absolutely fantastic. Very close and very different. I mean, very similar grape varieties on one side, that's Chardonnay and Pinot, mm-hmm. but then different grape varieties. The, geologically speaking, it's, it's different. And uh, that creates a real counterpoint to Burgundy's styles. Uh, and nothing could be more evident in Chardonnay. If you compare a classic Chardonnay from Meursault, Poligny, Montrachet, Beaune or whatever, compared to Jura, mm. there are significant differences. And that is because of everything we're talking about, terroir, geology, philosophy, all those kind of things. Well, what is the terroir? First of all, we know it rains, but in terms of soils, in terms of, you know, how does it differ from Burgundy? I mean, actually, I love the fact that Jura, the name comes from the Jurassic yep. era, right? Yep. And that's to do with the soils. Yeah, it, the the etymology of Jura actually originally stems back to a Celtic word, which means forested, a forested mountain. And then the word Jurassic is stemmed from, is stemmed from that as well. Uh, so it's kind of Jurassic and Celtic etymology. The geology is um, much more on the clay side uh, and mm-hmm. much more on the mudstone. Having a geography and geology degree behind me 
I can't I can't stand wine wine speak when it gets so so ridiculously pretentious. So the word marl, which you've probably heard of before, M A R L, it does not exist in geology. It, it is not it's not a thing. Does it not? No, in geology we okay. in geology we call it mudstone, uh, which is a combination of limestone and clay. But of course, mudstone makes it sound shit. So of course, it's been it's been <laughs> it's been changed into something that sounds a bit sexier. Well, it does. It does sound better than mudstone. Yeah. So marl okay. is more, more clay based. So you've got these clay based soils, but you do have it on generally on on limestone bedrock. So there's generally mm. fairly decent drainage, but it's not really about the drainage. There are these different types of um, rocks that we find: grey types rocks. The marl is either red marl, grey marl, blue marl. You know, different types of uh, minerals found within them. But the big, mm. the key difference is that Jura has about eighty percent. Marl, mudstone, and clay uh, to only about twenty percent limestone, whereas um, yeah. Burgundy is the other way round. So, whereas you find a Chardonnay in Burgundy on on limestone, which gives you that precise character, high acidity, with an, an excellent ability to age, but often a, a delicacy. Whereas mm. uh, Jura Chardonnays tend to have um, weight, roundness, uh, fruitiness, a bit fruitier. Yeah, definitely a, a bit of a riper character. And then mm. the you know the winemaking wise, they they can often work a little bit more oxidatively as well, where you, you can find savoury elements to those wines uh, too. But the terroir is is very different, and it's because it's the Saone River, which runs as the dividing line between Jura and Burgundy. Um, mm. is a depression. It's what we call a graben or a, a, a trench, which has been sunk by tectonic activity. So plates have moved and it's sunk. And then on each side of the sinking of this, you find the hills of Burgundy and then the mountains of mm. uh, Jura. And then you get lots of erosion, which have then really sort of surfaced those different soils. And that's why we have such a mosaic of terroirs in both of those areas. So, Yeah, interesting. But you mentioned uh, Chardonnay and the differences, which is really interesting. Yeah. Pinot Noir does like clay and it often, so in Burgundy, a lot of the Pinot Noir can be planted on more clay soils. So would that mean that the Pinot Noirs are not as different, potentially? How would you separate yeah. a Pinot Noir from Jura? Pinot Noir is a great variety which... Out of the five varieties of Jura, so there, there are the five grape varieties of which you have mm-hmm. you have Chardonnay and Sauvignon, which are your two whites, and then you have Trousseau, Pulsard, and Pinot Noir as your as your three reds. They're the five mm-hmm. that are permitted for AOC and all types of AOC Jura wines. The Pinot Noir variety is generally historically grown for sparkling in this area. Ah, okay, all right. So a lot of the clones of Pinot Noir that have been planted. Are they champagne clones? Are champagne and sparkling, yeah, sparkling okay. clones. So you don't yeah. tend to get a huge amount of density behind the Pinot Noirs of this area. Plus the area is a bit cooler, a bit wetter. And that is changing. There are certainly some better Pinot Noirs coming from around Arbois and Pupillon. Um, so kind of towards north of the area. But it's not the focus. The focus, uh, most of the Pinot goes into Clément de Jura. And then the Trousseau and the Pulsard is certainly the focus, the focus varieties. Okay, interesting. I didn't know that. And actually, for anybody listening who doesn't understand what we mean by champagne clones, they are always higher in acidity, which is ideal for making a sparkling. Whereas if you were to use Burgundy clones, they have more ripeness. They're going to reach reach different sugar levels, which will give you more flavours. So again, if you use a champagne clone to make a still Pinot, it's not really going to be very good, which, by the way, is what has happened in England and is very rapidly changing. Well, actually, the Pinot that I'm making here at 
Bear Green Winery. Uh, it's made from a, a champagne clone, but we are making... Interesting. And you're making a still. We are making a still, yeah. <gasps> wow, controversial. Would you like to debate with me what I've just said? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, your statement is generally correct, but as with all statements in the world of wine, <laughs> the, it, comes, yes. it comes with caveats because uh, mm-hmm. the word generally is what you should always put in front of most statements, right? Because generally you are correct, but there are um, some types of champagne clones which are a little bit more like still wine clones. And we're lucky enough to have one of those. Plus the vintage, Mm -hmm. the first vintage that we've produced, which is this year, 2022 has been a belter of a year. The fruits come in in such good condition and it all hinged on mother nature. So if our fruit had come in you know, in poorer conditions, we would have probably made a sparkling or a pet nap from those grapes, but we were okay. exceptionally happy with the quality. I've also employed quite an interesting amount of tricks, which is nothing to do with intervention in terms of, you know, yeast and all that kind of stuff. It's being clever and being very innovative. I'm not saying I'm clever. I'm just trying, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to say that you have to be creative. And okay. um, that's what we've done with, uh, with our Pinot. And it's currently happily sitting at the minute in New oak barrels, which we purchased from um, Danbury up in Essex. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which actually comes all the way back round to my camper van, which is a Danbury Essex <laughs> Volkswagen camper van. So. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so this Pinot that you have chosen, picked, now put in barrels to make your wine, which will be your first ever wine, right? Yeah, yeah. And just again, just everyone, this is England. We, we've we just popped back to England for a second, everyone. We're taking a pause on the Jura story. Where <laughs> is the grapes grown? So we are preparing land here. So where I live on the Surrey-Sussex border, mm-hmm. where my family is bedded in here, we have a wonderful amount of land. We're very lucky to have this. And we're preparing that land for viticulture. We just haven't got around oh, to planting amazing. it yet. So we will have uh, estate grapes going into our wine eventually, but that's probably Probably about uh, four or five years off yet. We have, therefore, we're acting as a negotiant. So we have a winery here. Uh, we have stainless steel vats. We have a press. We have barrels. We have a, a laboratory. You know, we have a nice small artisanal boutique winery where where mm-hmm. we can, we can crush probably up to about ten tons. So okay. we we can make something like eight thousand bottles. Something something along those uh, That's numbers. Brilliant! It's exciting. But this year we only crushed one ton because it was our first uh, first year. The winery only got fully complete. The builders left in in September. So then the fruit came in in October. So. It's, uh, you know, it was really sort of um, very much close to the wire. And the grapes we sourced from a farmer uh, in Sussex. So we're Surrey, Sussex border, but on the Surrey side. Mm -hmm. If you go about half an hour south of here, you are very close to Brighton. And uh, that's where our grapes are sourced. It was uh, uh, about a ton of mainly champagne varietals. Uh, So the Pinot Noir and the Meunier are champagne varietals. The Chardonnay, though, is a Dijon clone, 95 Dijon clone Chardonnay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. and uh, yeah, we um, th- they were selling fruit to a much larger producer, their fruit, uh, the previous year, but they got very upset with how they were treated. They broke away from that said larger producer, and then mm. that's when we came along and said, we'll buy them, and they were very happy to deal with us because we're much smaller, um, and we're making still wine, which they're very excited about as well. So we brought the fruit in on the 12th of October. We processed yep. it, and when I say we, it's me and my partner. The, the business for the winery is owned by my wife and I. My wife and I own all the businesses. Uh, we have five, mm-hmm. 
five wine businesses, two wine schools, a wine bar, online wine business, and this winery. And this winery... Yeah, just a few. Yes, yeah, just a few. Two kids, two dogs, and a big house as well. But um, <laughs> And don't forget Jeff. And Jeff, yeah, he's he's probably lacking in maintenance because of all the other... All the other stuff that goes on. But we teamed up with a shooter of mine, a guy called Sam Hill, who works at my wine school. He is trained at Plumpton College as a, as a grape grower and a winemaker. He has a degree at Plumpton College down in, in Brighton. And we have partnered together to make this wine. Love it. Just a two-man team. Now, what is the name of this winery? The, the winery is called Bear Green Winery, B-E-A-R-E, which is the location. We're in a little sleepy village called Bear Green. Uh, and it's Bear Green Winery. So we, um, we're in the Surrey Hills and we're just on the border of Sussex. The, the land we have here is clay. It's not mudstone or marl. It's clay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's clay loam soils. But it, it really is interesting. The growing season we had this year. Now, we're not growing grapes yet, but I have a weather station. and We're preparing data. Monitoring da- it. Yeah, we're preparing data. And uh, the year we had this year was crazy because up to October the 12th is when our grapes came in, we had only had 240 millimetres of rain from the 1st of January to the 12th of October. So 10 10 months. Oh my God. And my weather station now has recorded nearly 800 millimetres in total. So since the 12th of October, and we're now on the 23rd of December, coming to the end of the year, we've had an extra 600 millimetres. It's rained so much after harvest, which is the best time for it. Uh, is it true? But it's yes. been so but damp, hasn't it? Yeah. Yes. So it's been so dry, but we're quite happy because clay soils, uh, and if you talk to the guys down at, say, Gusborne, Charlie Holland, they have a site on Chalk, which is Romney's Marsh, you know, around mm-hmm. Appledore area where the winery is, but then they have the site of clay down in Sussex, uh, the other side of Sussex, and they are very excited about that because clay is becoming quite an interesting soil with the drop in the amount of rainfall we're having, which is, is decreasing in this area. So there you go, everybody. Watch out. Clay gives a lot of concentration, depth, and fruitiness. I like clay. Now, when is that wine going to be out? Is that going to be maybe summertime next year? Summer yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's our first one. So we're, we're making one white, one red. We have Chardonnay in stainless steel. It's not in a barrel because we didn't have enough to put it in barrel. We have the mm-hmm. Pinot Noir in barrel. And then we have another red, the Mernier and Pinot Noir blended together in another stainless steel vat. The desire is to blend all the red together to make one red, and then we'll have the white. Um, they will spend as much time as they need to. There's, the, the good thing about our winery, we're going to expand the production, but really it's much more love and passion in this. You know, we're not sitting down trying to mm. cook the books and make it work financially. Of course, we, we want to try and make it work as financially. That's as, always helpful. Yeah, yeah, we want it to be balanced in some way but um we we're quite keen on on just making the best and we're talking to a lot of growers around here to purchase their fruit working with ortega bacchus old vine seval blanc to do some skin contacts some amphora style wines Mm. we've got a lot of quite a lot of desires and passions to make some very interesting wines I think we'll have to get you back on the podcast with the wine when it's ready, right? Really? Yeah, for sure. So now, would you be ever interested in bringing across any of the uh, Jura grape varieties? Sauvignon, Pulsard and Trousseau. Yeah, yeah I, I know of some friends of mine who have planted Trousseau, so I... Uh, in England? Okay, in England, yeah. Okay. So 
definitely let's would, see yes yeah exactly i'm i'm Watch more space. i'm more uh yeah i definitely would be interested in variety i mean pool salad too so are interesting because they are fairly decent in cool climate wet conditions so they, they should be okay i mean trousseau is a bit of more of a challenging one because it, it, it's a bit of more of a late ripener but pool salad, you should be able to work with and it depends on the clone of course as it always does pool- <laughs> clones generally generally speaking yes generally speaking (laughs) no let's actually go to these three great varieties so people can understand why they might want to drink them and of course so everyone we've had a moment in england and now we're going back to jura pulsade you know this is actually really pale and light-bodied and beautiful red fruits with kind of for me a bit of an autumnal vibe how would you describe pulsade yeah, Pulsar, Pulsar is um, uh, historically you would you would say that Pulsar would, is actually more of a rosé than a red, and that's not mm. that's not through want of you know trying to make a red. It's as exactly as you mentioned. It's uh, exceptionally thin skinned. It's it's also known as Pulsar as well, so P L start as much as Pulsar. So it's um, mm-hmm. has two kind of main synonyms behind it, and it's indigenous thought to be indigenous of the Jura area. It's been cultivated there for five six hundred years that we know of from britain record and it, it, apparently the name comes from i think oh, this is where my french would be terrible i think it's pelos <laughs> pelos which is a wild uh, a dialect for like wild plums okay in okay. kind of like uh, jurassic sort of speak but yeah it's uh, it's remarkably thin skinned it's it's also uh, it's okay in in wet weather but it, it is prone to things like coulure which is shedding of the blossom and you know other other issues around uh, uh, water, but it does ripen early, which is a benefit. Mm, that can be good. Yeah. In this area, Jura is very well known for autumnal rains. So if you can get a grape that ripens early and then misses all the basically what like what's happened with England this year uh, on the thirteenth of October, it started to piss it down. It was it was kind of biblical, wasn't it? And for about for about six weeks in this country. So if you can get a grape that you actually pick really early, you miss that kind of running the gambit with autumnal rains, which I think is quite important. But yeah, we should probably mention um, a really important individual of Jura who was one of okay. the one of the biggest sort of uh, protagonists for the variety. Pulsar, as well as Trousseau, um, was a guy that you'll know fairly well because you have things like uh, pasteurization, which ah, was created by yes. him, and penicillin mm-hmm. and a few other bits and bobs. Louis Pasteur was uh, born in Arbois and was a Jura. Was he, born? he was. He was a Jura man through and through. And in fact, he lived in Arbois. And a lot of the locals used to walk by his laboratory, uh, which is today a museum in Arbois, and they used to peer into the windows and look in and go, "My God, it looks like something out of Nostradamus." It was so, <laughs> it was it was just so sort of epic in there. And he was so important for a number of things. But in terms of alcoholic production, he was the one who identified yeast strains. Yeah, the yeast were the ones that were doing it, and it wasn't just magic. <laughs> yes, exactly. It wasn't just some sort of spiritual uh, thing happening. So he, he was good for that. And he was a huge flag flyer for the likes of indigenous variety, like Pulsar, for, mm, for example. Okay. So yeah, so the variety, pale-skinned, very red-fruited, and it oxidizes remarkably quickly. So... If you make it reductively and if you make it with a lot of protection, you can make a really gentle, very primary red-fruited style. But a lot of producers make it in a more rustic style where they uh, allow oxidation. You know, they might allow the fermentations to be a bit hotter. Pulsard's better at a little bit cooler ferments. Uh, And it's it's much better also with very, very limited amounts of... um, Pigeage, uh, uh, punching down. 
because mm-hmm. you can find a little bit of astringency in the skins of those thin skins of pulsar, which can create a herbaceous element, which actually you do find in pulsar a little bit more common than not. So it's a variety that you can find it pristine, gentle, and almost like a delicate sanso, you know, with yeah, red fruit yeah, yeah, yeah. with less alcohol, uh, of course, or as a real sort of savoury, it looks, you know, even if it's a young wine, it, it could be garnety colour, have this sort of savoury element to it. You'll find it having dried fruits, um, sort of a gaminess, a meatiness to it. And that's because the oxidation has kind of taken hold of those kind of rustic styles. But they are generally, and this is a big thing in Jura, by the way. In Jura, you start with the reds, you finish with the whites, and then Van Jone. So if you ever do a Jura tasting, you begin with reds, you begin with Pulsar, and then Pinot and Trousseau, and then you go on to Chardonnay, then Sauvignon, and then things like Van Jone towards the end. That's so interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, that, that so gives, that gives you a real insight into the styles. The styles. They are delicate yes. and very, very gentle. And that's even with Pinot and most Trousseau as well. But then the whites are complex and concentrated and big and and you know they have a lot to shout about they have elegance as well but they are mm. they are they are bigger than the reds yes because trousseau has still quite got a light body hasn't it it's obviously darker fruited it has a little bit more kind of spice to it and firmer tannins than what you're going to get from pulsat but it is bigger than pulsat isn't it yes uh, trousseau is a really interesting variety it definitely is the variety which is the future for the most premium quality of the reds of oh, Jura. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. Pulsard makes, um, I mean, there are some great Pulsards out there, but Chateau Reno, for example, fantastic. But generally speaking, the Pulsard's on the lighter side of it. The Pinot, most of the fruit goes to sparkling, so then you're left with Trousseau. And there are certain clones, to bring clones up again, of Trousseau, and specifically the one called Trousseau à la Dame, or the ladies, uh, the ladies clone, which is phenomenal. It makes really concentrated expressions. Okay. But you are right. It is thin-skinned in terms of... So it actually has thicker skins than Pulsar, mm-hmm. but thinner than what you would expect of other mainstay sort of black grapes. But it, its thickness in comparison to Pulsar means it actually is, is much more protective against fungal diseases. Okay, and, yeah, a bit uh, easier to work. But it also needs ripening more. Uh, so it needs to be found on the best sites. It needs to be found on the warmer soils, you know, better aspect. Uh, and it acts more like what we would expect a Pinot Noir to act like in Burgundy. It has more of that um, cherry to sort of plum area to it. Mm. You know, there's a more elegant sort of balance to it. Good acidities, again, a little bit more tannic structure than Pulsar. And the Aladam clone can have much more structure as well. Okay, uh, in, in comparison, yeah, there's some cracking trousseaux out there. And for anybody who's ever had Miranzal from the the northwest of Spain, Spain yeah. it is obviously we're talking clones, but this is the same great variety and Bastado from Portugal. So you may have tried this variety. And any variety that has a synonym of Bastado is a friend of mine. I think it's just a one. <laughs> It's just a wonderful... I mean, and you know that comes from how difficult it can be to grow. It's, it's, yeah. it's completely... How, it's, it's, I have this com- uh, conversation with a lot of people uh, about naming of grapes, and it always yes. comes back to Nebbiolo. And if anybody tells you that Nebbiolo... Oh, it's because of the fogs. We name it after the fogs. It's absolute bullshit. We name Nebbiolo because it has a foggy skin. Uh, it has a big, thick bloom to it, so it looks foggy. We always name grapes and vines after how they look. The way they look. Not mm-hmm. after a climate, which can change very dramatically from one year <laughs> to the other. So um, we know that 
Trousseau has a synonym, bastardo, and it's more likely of how it's probably not likely to look like a bastard, but it's probably more... <laughs> what does a bastard look like anyway? I don't know, exactly. Uh, it's more likely to act like in the video. It's just a tricky, tricky little number. That's so funny. So let's go across to Sauvignon. So the white grape variety, which also is known as Tramina yes. in other places. So there you go for everyone. I mean, the wonderful world of grapes having a million names. Yeah. <laughs> But this was quite a cool grape because actually it went across to Australia, didn't it? And it was mistaken as Albarino for a while. Uh, I don't know if they've completely cleared that up. This variety has had, yes, mis- lots of mistakes. The, the, the mistake of the Albarino thing comes from the institute in Galicia, one of the archive institutes of Galicia, mistakenly listing it as Savignon, Albarino as Savignon. And then that, that just then sort of spirals out of control, right? So this is, and this is classic though, before DNA profiling, a lot of it was taken on botany and ampelography and, you know, on how the vine looks, how the leaf shapes are. And of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. There's a lot of um, differences across that people can surmise from, mm-hmm. from those. And you can understand why certain vines were called certain things. I mean, Tempranillo was thought to be Pinot Noir for most of its life until uh, we thought we thought how ridiculous that was. Um, <laughs> I had no idea, really. Yeah, it's because because it of Pinot the Pinot Camino. Noir. Yeah, the yeah. Camino to Santiago. They, Tempranillo was always one of the most more elegant expressions of. You know, this is before we had the onslaught of you know men- Menthia and all that kind of stuff. But Tempranillo wasn't as big as Garnacha, right, in Monastrell, and was like. Well, it must come from France, then. It must be more elegant, and it must be Pinot Noir. If it's elegant, it has to be Pinot. Yeah, exactly. And then then monks were traversing the Camino de Santiago, the Way of St. James, and they were like, well, there you go. It's been brought along from monks coming from Cluny or whatever and bringing... bring it down. And and that just is so common. You can imagine just how it happens. You can just imagine somebody who has a few vines, and someone says, oh, I want to buy these. What is it? And I went, they go, "Uh, well, um, actually... A few years ago, a guy told me it was this, but I, I think it might be this because I saw this, and then it just changes and changes and changes. And that's it. But, Done. but, uh, but yeah, today we have DNA profiling, and you're exactly right to say Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, which is from Jura, is identical to the green grape Tramina, which is today a city found in the Alto Adige in the northern Italy, in Sutrol. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a part of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, that variety went off to mutate into Gewürztraminer, of course, Traminer to Gewürztraminer. And there is a mm-hmm. mutation of Sauvignon as well, which is Sauvignon Rose, but uh, Jose, oh, which is... Okay. It's, if you, you mean to find it, you'll be very lucky. Uh, it's very, very little, limited amounts of it. It seems like the mutations were much more evident in uh, the old Austro-Hungarian mm-hmm. Empire. So tell me about Sauvignon. What is Sauvignon? I mean, this variety... Is is fucking off the charts. It's absolutely (laughs) off the charts. It is in what way? It is like eye-wateringly, enamel-strippingly acidic. It is exceptionally acidic. It does have some good acidity. Good, uh, generally, generally, it has good acidity. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's very acidic. It's more than its sibling namesake of Sauvignon. It's more than Chenin. It's it's very, very high in acidity, and hence why in the past it's been worked very oxidatively very much with flour and very much with yeast. They work the hell out of Sauvignon to give it a counterpoint to its acidity. And that's why it works so well with those wine styles. So it's a traditional variety, um, which of course made its way across here. Now, this area um, is exceptionally well known for oxidative wine styles. It's less being made now. So oxidative meaning, of course, 
allowing the oxygen to affect it through the production and through maturation. And historically, that's what it's known for, and variations of that, you know, mm. underfloor, sous as well, which I'll, I'll touch on in a bit. But um, you're historically very well known. They're moving much more to, I hate to say it, but like more modern styles, but more... I was about to say cleaner wines, because that makes it sound like these old styles are unclean, but which is absolutely not what I'm saying. But more, you know, more modern winemaking, you know, the kind of German-influenced, you know, stainless steel. Uh, mm-hmm. Clean is what I keep saying, but, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of that style of wine uh, uh, is what they're moving towards today. But it is really the fame of the traditional style which put this wine on the map. There's a lovely castle found in Jura called Chateau de Chalon. And this was constructed by um, a nobleman called um, Jean de Chalon the first. Ooh, actually, that might be a lie. It might be the thirteenth. <laughs> it's, right, it's over the first. Somewhere the between the I first know, or the thirteenth. Eh, it's fine. One, two, three, this four, five. I, this is where I have number. pockets in my memory, which are not, <laughs> not the best. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't have uh, information. You're fine. And, but um, so this dude. Yeah, this this guy. He built a castle, uh, which has a really prominent outlook. It's on it's on a hill that overlooks the Foitier Valley, which which is just below it. So just uh, in the middle of Jura, he builds a castle, and a village springs up around it, and it becomes quite famous in producing Sauvignon in this way of. Um, uh, you know, fairly low yields, but then putting it through an oxidative process where it's placed in barrels uh, like sherry would be, where it's not full to the top. It's often mm-hmm. around five, six with ullage. And this really encourages the development of floor, otherwise known in French as sous-voile, meaning under yeast. And a nice thick film of, of floor develops. Uh, and it goes through the processes which, uh, you know, like a manthanilla or a fino will go through whilst it's sitting in barrel. It has the reaction between the alcohol and the yeast. The yeast is very happy as it's getting fed oxygen. It's getting <laughs> fed nutrients from uh, from the wine itself. And a lot of reactions take place and the wine becomes further enhanced and gets more complex from those um, compounds that's derived from uh, from that yeast and it spends uh, now these days there is a, a minimum amount of time it must spend in this process to actually be considered as what we call a vin jaune which is yellow wine because uh, it turns mm-hmm. into a yellowy a yellowy color so chateau chalon which is a place a castle now with a village around it produces exclusively vin jaune vin jaune is the style and Chateau Chalon mm-hmm. is a, a village that a uh, castle that produces. It's about fifty hectares large. It produces it. It's probably known as the famous, most famous expression of Vin Jaune. Now these wines become famous, um, bearing in mind this landscape was part of the House of Savoy, uh, the very famous family that dominated the Alpine passes, both on the uh, the eastern side of France and then the western side of Italy, and whatever wines these guys would drink, they tended to get put into the, the limelight. So the Marquis de Barolo started to present wines in Piemonte to the House of Savoy. And then Barolo becomes famous because it becomes known as the King of Wines, the Wine of Kings mm-hmm. off yeah. the back of that. And on the French side of it, but still in the Savoy lands, this Vin Jaune starts to get served to nobility, clergy, That's aristocracy. Yeah, So mm. it becomes really well known, this yellow wine of the Alps. So this wine then starts to give birth to this real following and a big domestic following as well, where a big wine fair springs up. And this wine fair is today, and this is a big oh, fair. Is this the one in February? It is. It is called yeah. the Percy de la Vin Jaune, so the piercing 
of the yellow wine. Uh, and it's held in February, which is a ridiculous month to hold it, but there we are. Um, <laughs> I've been to it a couple of times. I have freezed every part of my body uh, in mm-hmm. those conditions. It's very, very cold. It's like minus, in that time of year, it's like minus five, minus six degrees. Um, oh, fun. You really have to sort of warm yourself up by fortifying yourself with these wines. And um, this festival attracts sort of 50,000, 60,000 people per year. And historically, what would happen, not at this festival, but in all of the small wineries, the small families that would make this vin jaune, they would have no way of assessing that wine whilst it sits for the 60 months, uh, 70 months, or or even much more, you know, time in barrel. They basically put it in there, leave it, and when they open it up, you know, six, seven years later, they pray that it's still wine and not vinegar. (laughs) So the process of putting like a a little um, ladle in there and piercing the film at the top of it which is called the the voile. Um, That's called piercing the vin jaune or piercing the yellow wine. You take then some wine out, taste it. There was a huge religious thing around this. They would pray. They would hope that this would be wine. Today, of course, we can manage the process and... But they still emulate this old process. So you know what the French are like. They love their pomp and ceremony. So they have like five <laughs> or six hours of, of, you know, stuff on stage and lots of speeches and lots of people getting awarded with things, hats and, and medals and all that kind of stuff. And then they have a couple of barrels sitting there. Of course, it's all been tested already, but they reenact what would be done in, in an old homestead. And they, they take out the bung, they put in a little uh, ladle, they bring it out. And as as they're bringing it out, very gently putting it into a glass, the crowd start to go, ooh. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, you get the typical sort of French, the pinkies up, you know, they're tasting it and, you know, really swashing it around the mouth. And then suddenly a big smile appears on the man's or the woman's face and everyone starts cheering and then they start passing around a lot of Van Joan and you get drunk. Oh, so. I love it. Oh, that sounds cold, but delightfully fun. Yeah, it is. And once you get past the point of no return, you don't notice the cold. So it's uh, so it's fine. funny. So of course that is Van Joan, but obviously there are lots of Sauvignons that are not made in that style now. So people can have a fresh, as you said, clean. Yes, <laughs> yes. But a fresh style, which would be citrusy, floral. and I mean, they can be a little bit richer depending on um, I guess vintage and if they've been left on the vine a bit longer but that's citrus floral style is what people should expect right yeah I'd say there are the three major types of Sauvignon Uh, it it isn't generally used for sparkling so so forget about Mm. that it's generally used for three types so Vanjon styles which we just talked about really powerful exceptionally tertiary very nutty um, with layers of spice behind it uh, uh, and lots of complexity bready uh, you know complexities behind it then a baby version of that some producers don't wish to go through the minimum amount of time that it has to spend in the barrel under yeast maybe they don't have the patience to put it through (laughs) uh, the number always escapes i think it's 60 months it's something like 60 months and maybe they want okay well actually i want to release something earlier Uh, i want to do it for two years the same process but two years maybe maybe two and a half years they can't call it a Van Jones because they haven't followed the process yeah. to its entirety, to the letter. So they have to label it as Sauvignon on the label. Sometimes they call it Tradition. So they'll say okay, Sauvignon Tradition. And uh, it will have what you mentioned. It will have that kind of citrus floral element, but then elements of what a Van Jones will have. And they're fantastic because they don't cost an arm and a leg like a Van Jones can, but they have elements of that old traditional style. 
And the third yeah. style is what you mentioned, uh, working reductively, working protectively, topping up the barrels, not allowing floor to develop, not allowing ullage in the cask, working how most... And this is another wonderful fact. Jura, as we've been talking about, is a rustic area. It's kind of backwater. Despite the fact that it's very close to Germany, it doesn't have huge amount of influence in modern winemaking until recently. So they would produce all of these oxidative wines, and they really didn't produce many non-oxidative, the third style we're talking about here for Savignon, the mm-hmm. protective or reductive style. They didn't produce that. They just didn't produce much of that until recent times, in the last sort of, uh, sort of 20, 30 years or, or so. Uh, and they started to produce that. They would start to top up their barrels. And they were so proud of doing this. They were like, yeah, this is a new process <laughs> for us. The whole world had been doing topping up for, you know, a thousand years. But, uh, you know, since the monks, you know, of Charlemagne have been topping up barrels. But these guys suddenly started doing it in the last 20 years. And, and they, in fact, label with it. You know, you go and buy a Chardonnay from Burgundy and it doesn't tell you anything about that it's been topped up because it's actually just... Because it's normal. <laughs> it's, it's normal. It's a given. But in Jura, they put the French terminology for it is ouillage, which is o, it's classic French. So it's a million different vowels. So mm. O-U-I... L-L-A-G-E, and um, the art of doing it is we so O-U-I-L-L with an E and, a, and an accent on it. And you'll find that on labels, the we terminology you'll find on That's the labels. That's actually so, really useful, though. Yeah. The so, fresher style. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So if you go into a shop that has a few Jura wines and you see three Savignons, you see one as a vin jaune, you see one as a tradition, and then you see one as a we and you know that you want a fresher style, a more younger, fresher style, you'll pick the latter one because it's been yeah. it's been actually been made normally. <laughs> was, I love, I love that, that about Jura. They're just so old school that they're like, oh, what's this topping up thing? Never heard of it. Let's put it on the label, which is wonderful. Well, listen, but that is good for the consumer. To yeah, know. For I don't sure. think we've mentioned now every style, because you've also mentioned Cremant de Jura, except for Van de Pays. Yes. Which is a sweet wine. That's the only one I think that we are missing to complete the set. Yeah, in my cellar, I definitely have about five or six times the amount of Jura than I do Burgundy in my cellar, mainly because Burgundy's kind of, you know, it's priced itself outside of my wallet. But Jura is more accessible. So these wine styles we've been talking about, you know, apart from probably Van Joan, which is a bit more premium, you can pick a good bottle of Jura up at 20, 25, 30 pounds. It's decently priced. Most of them sit in that range. Let's say 20 to 35, that kind of area. And Burgundy's generally 30 to 50% more than that today. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a lot of experience in all those wines. Van der Pei, I have tasted um, a fair few, but the few is the operative word because there aren't many producers that make it today. Yeah. It is where every grape apart from Pinot Noir is permitted to be dried on straw or bamboo or whatever you want to use. Pai, the word means straw, doesn't it? It does, Pai. yeah. So this is straw wine and it's drying the grapes. Some people like Frédéric Mosse, M-O-S-S-E apostrophe, who makes, I think it's like 400 grams per litre of sugar in his Van der Pai. Mm. But typically they're, they're less sweet than that. But they're good. They are your raisiny style wines that you'd expect from those styles. But I've probably only tried, you know, five or six in my in my lifetime. And I think there's only something like eight or nine producers of Van der Pei today. So it's, it's quite a rare style. Okay. So, you know, if somebody wants to really hunt it down, it exists, but it's a, yeah. <laughs> it'll be a challenge. It's like a dying ember of, of the tradition of, of wines of this area. Uh, you know, one of the old school styles of Van Joan is going strong and there's the demands there for it. But Van der Pei, there's more competition. There's not much competition Precisely. for 
Van Schoen. And I do want to mention one thing about Van Schoen, which I want to clear up something about it. At one time in my life, toying with doing the MW, but... Oh, yeah, me too. I, um, you know, I became a winemaker, I had kids, and I, I've got five businesses. And I just felt that I didn't need to be an MW. You know, I'm fairly... Yeah. I'm not tooting my own horn, but I'm fairly well accomplished in education. And it would have basically been an expense and a, and a stressful time in my life to put MW after my word. So I was toying one time to do the MW and I had actually come up with my thesis. My thesis was going to be on the origins of floor of the under yeast wine styles, because I wanted okay, to dispel what people thought about floor, because everybody immediately thinks that it is Andalusia, Sherry, that is where this process stems from. But we have information written by Greek philosophers and also Phoenician sources that then were passed down to Greek philosophers of doing wines under this style, this process, which then ties, that's, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, tying into the fact that you've got wines coming from Phoenicia to Greece being mentioned, Phoenicia, modern day Lebanon, and being brought across. And then they populated areas like the Phoenicians populated Sardinia, where we have a brilliant wine called Fenaccia di Oristano, which is underneath floor yeast as well, predating sherry. And then Van Schoen as well. Van Schoen would have been something which was probably more likely influenced by uh, the Greek and the Greek Byzantines, which were the okay. Eastern Roman Empire and then the Romans. So it's likely that this process of under floor, under yeast, would come from the Far East, uh, by Far East, of the east of the Mediterranean, and then moved across to places like Vajon in Jura and Sardinia and Sicily, where it's well known as well, and then eventually the Spanish Peninsula, uh, the Iberian Peninsula. And I was very excited about that, but then I sat down and went, I would have gone through that. I was so passionate about writing about, <laughs> and then, but I would have gone through a whole world of pain to get to that point. And I thought, actually, no, so not worth it. Forget about but it. But you yeah. just expressed it now, so there we go. It's <laughs> Somebody out there can have it if they want. They can have there it, you go. and I can oh, tutor so them through funny. some of it if they wish. Love that. Now, just to finish off on Jura, I think we've basically really touched on the main appellations because we've already said Chateau Chalon, that little small area that's doing Vangean. Arbois is the main one. Côte de Jura covers everything. And then there's L'Etoile, yeah, which is the star, isn't it? L'Etoile. Exactly. Is that just for Chardonnay? Yes, it's a white zone. It's not just for Chardonnay, it's for Sauvignon okay. as well. The, the biggest AOC is Arbois. Yes. That is probably just shy of 800 hectares today uh, and Jura is about 2000 so you're looking at about uh, mm. 40% and it's actually very famous for reds and Arbois is remember centered around the town of the same name and then famous for Louis Pasteur who was born and bred from Arbois and then you're right to mention Côte de Jura is the second largest it's uh, geographically a larger area but more scattered in terms of its uh, concentration of vineyards more famous for white blends but Van Jaune is within that category. Chateau Chalon as well, and L'Etoile. So L'Etoile means the star for two reasons, really, and take your pick, really, which one you, you want to go with. It is on a hill which kind of looks like a star, but uh, if, I like that if you were to That's see it, you'll be like, a little bit far-fetched, but okay. And then <laughs> the geology, the, there are fossilised remains in this part of the Jura, where they have found small accumulations of uh, pentacrine fossils, which are five-pointed fossils. So look a little bit... That's probably more realistic. A little bit more like a star, yeah. So 
but they they like do like to say in all the marketing it's because of two reasons you know you've got the hill <laughs> and the and the soil it's an area which um is near a lovely town called Arle lovely castle there chateau d'Arle and mm-hmm. makes splendid whites very much more so towards traditional sauvignon and then more reductive pro- protective chardonnay but you know once again the word mostly or generally is uh, employed. If we've learnt one thing this episode, <laughs> it's to always use the word yes. generally before any exactly. statement. It's like a legal phrase to cover your ass, isn't it? <laughs> right, there you go, everyone. Generally, that is Jura covered. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it. And we will have more from Jimmy next week. We will be taking you to the Canary Islands and mostly Tenerife, as this is the island with the most production. If you don't know of the magic coming out from these volcanic soils, you need to listen to next week's episode. Now, as always, I finish with a wine quote, and this is by Horace, the famous author and poet during the time of Augustus. And he said... No poem was ever written by a drinker of water. (laughs) And as this is the first episode back of 2023, may I take this opportunity to wish you a creative and inspiring and joyful new year where wine takes you to new locations, where you try new food pairings, meet and make new friends, where wine makes you more curious and you continue exploring the depths of this incredible wine world. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, share with all of your wine-loving friends, and until next week, cheers to you.